0: Good morning, morning, church. I am isolating at home with COVID symptoms. They're very mild, and I expect to be with you in person next week, no problem. I believe that you've already heard the story from John chapter 2 of Jesus at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turns water into wine. And now I want you to hear from the prophet Isaiah chapter 62. Both of these passages, John 2, and Isaiah 62 uh, emphasize the priority of relationship, and both admit what you and I know, that uh, relationships come with some amount of trouble. This is Isaiah chapter 62, beginning with verse 1. For Zion's sake I won't keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I won't sit still, until her righteousness shines out like a light, and her salvation blazes like a torch. Nations will see your righteousness, all kings, your glory. You will be called by a new name, which the Lord's own mouth will determine. You will be a splendid garland in the Lord's hand, a royal turban in the palm of God's hand. You will no longer be called abandoned, and your land will no longer be called deserted. Instead, you will be called my delight is in her, and your land married because the lord delights in you your land will be cared for once again as a young man embraces a young woman so your sons will embrace you with the joy of a bridegroom because of his bride so your god will rejoice because of you this passage was written when uh, the babylonians had been defeated and god's people have returned home Uh, from exile. One might expect to hear, and they lived happily ever after at this point in the Bible. But that's not what we get at the end of the book of Isaiah. All is not quite right just yet. Restoration is in motion, but there are obstacles, you see. There is brokenness to tend to, broken dreams, and shattered faith. Has God forgotten the people of Israel, they wonder? This question is evident in verse 1 of chapter 62. It's here that Isaiah makes very clear that his primary audience is God, not the people who are returning to Jerusalem. Isaiah says to God on behalf of the traumatized, for Zion's sake, I won't keep silent, I won't sit still until her righteousness shines out like a light and her salvation blazes like a torch. Everyone will see this radiance. All nations, all kings will see the glory of God's people. The New Revised Standard Version says in verse 3, You will be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, A royal diadem in the hand of your God. And Pastor James Howell says, like the King James Version before it, these words shimmer with 17th century elite British sensibility. Did the average Israelite living in exile ever see a shiny crown or a bejeweled diadem? Absolutely not. No way. The common English Bible that I read to you says that Zion will look like a garland in the Lord's hand and a royal turban in God's hand. That's probably a better image of what the people knew and what they longed for. There will be a change of names A change of identity in the people of God. They will no longer refer to themselves as abandoned or deserted, but they will call themselves delightful and beloved, and all the world will see this glorious, this glorious transformation in God's people. I've been thinking, I've been thinking about glory this week. The short passage in Isaiah about setting things right has at its goal witnessing the glory of the people of God. Late Wednesday afternoon, I walked outside to try to catch the end of a pitching lesson that was taking place in my front yard. The sun was descending in the sky, but not yet setting. Its pleasant light was shining through the tree branches at just the right angle to make every image look warm and alive. Even the dust in the air seemed to shimmer. The gentle breeze, the pop of the baseball gloves, the halos on the men, the spectators and the players. You know, it was, in my eyes, a glorious sight, right in my front yard. The writers of the Jewish annotated New Testament define glory as the visible manifestation of God's presence. The visible manifestation of God's presence. As in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory we have seen the visible manifestation of God's presence, the glory as of a father's only son full of grace and truth. Or in the Hebrew Bible, in Exodus chapter 16, where the glory of the Lord appears to the Israelites in the form of a cloud, and they understand that even in the wilderness they will be provided for, even in the wilderness They will be fed. You see, glory is a visible manifestation of God's presence. Philosopher Dallas Willard defined glory this way. He said, glory is the magnificent outpouring of the radiant splendor of God's power, strength, beauty, and goodness. And Willard taught that glory constantly fills the universe. I like that idea. Glory permeates all of creation. Willard said that glory is fully reflected in the personhood of Jesus the Christ. And in his book, The Allure of Gentleness, Willard wrote, if God showed up in his full glory, we could all just kiss our free will goodbye. I like that idea. It makes me chuckle. In other words, if God showed up in God's full glory, we wouldn't be able to resist God's self. We would have no free will. Three of the four gospel writers tell the story of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on a mountain to pray. And while they were there, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, and Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and the disciples saw Jesus' glory, and they were afraid. There was a voice from a cloud, hmm, suspicious, that said, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Galo Day was a brilliant New Testament professor at my seminary when I was a student, and her favorite topic to teach was the Gospel of John. This week, I found that she wrote, "...in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the revelation of God's glory in Jesus happens in the transfiguration. But in John's gospel, in John's gospel, there is no story of the transfiguration." In John's gospel, God's glory is manifested in Jesus' life and in his ministry. And at the wedding of Cana, the wedding is the inaugural event of Jesus' ministry. This, the wedding story, is John's transfiguration story. Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding where his family is present, where his friends are present. And the very last line in the story says Jesus here revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him the disciples trusted him I've come to think I've come to think that God's glory has two ingredients power and presence power sure it's in God's glory it's there when Jesus turns water into wine. That is a sign of power. But, you know, I think we overfocus on God's power. Glory is not just about God's power. Divine glory is also about presence, and it is about relationship. Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have known this. She must have witnessed this in her son, you know, she only shows up twice in the Gospel of John. She shows up here at the wedding of Can- at Cana, and then she shows up at the foot of the cross, and neither time is she named. She is simply referred to as the mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus shows up at extremely important moments in the Gospel of John. She shows up as a witness of tremendous suffering, and she shows up as a witness of tremendous glory. At the wedding, Mary shows up confidently anticipating what her son will bring to the problem. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, and they do, and Jesus' glory is revealed, and those who follow him trust him. You see, it's my experience, it's my experience that God's glory shows up in the space than the spaces that are between us, when I experience something or someone to be forcefully good, that is glorious. It doesn't always happen, but it is a witness of God's glory in part. One of one of my favorite book covers is from the book, the Book of Joy. Uh, the The content is also quite good in this book, but on the cover is the image of the friendship between Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. Desmond Tutu recently died. He died the day after Christmas. In April of 2015, Archbishop Tutu traveled to the Dalai Lama's hometown to celebrate his 80th birthday, and this is how their meeting at the airport was described by the writer of the Book of Joy, Douglas Abrams. He writes this, the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama was smiling. His eyes were sparkling behind his large square-framed glasses. He bowed low, and then the archbishop spread his arms out, and they embraced. They separated, and they held each other's shoulders, gazing into each other's eyes as if trying to convince themselves that they were they were really together again. I haven't seen you in a long while, Archbishop Tutu said as he touched the Dalai Lama's cheek tenderly, With the tips of his fingers and inspected him closely. You look very good. The Dalai Lama still holding the archbishop's small shoulders puckered as if to blow him a kiss. The archbishop raised his left hand, gold wedding ring shining, and clasped the Dalai Lama's chin as one might do to a precious grandchild. Then the archbishop went in for a kiss on the cheek. The Dalai Lama, not used to kisses from anyone, flinched, but also laughed with delight, which was quickly accompanied by the archbishop's high-pitched cackle. You don't like a kiss, the archbishop said, and he gave him another one on the other cheek. This is an image of the glory that shows up between us. I wonder... I wonder where you will find glory this week. You know, there's no doubt that in searching for glory, we risk suffering. And sometimes we do suffer, but I do believe that it's worth it. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Eternal God, I am grateful that your glory continuously and constantly fills our world and that there are moments when I get a glimpse in part of your presence and your power. When I see that relationships, the relationships that I am in are forcefully good, I see glory. You desire that we understand the goodness of relationship and so would you allow us to risk Allow us to risk and persevere through suffering that we might know a little more of your glory.